Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 127, Plowshares into Swords. Last time, Gustav Krupp had used his money and influence to help Hitler not only achieve the chancellorship, but also the dictatorship after the Reichstag fire and the following election. With that squared away, it was time to get on with taking Germany back to the top. But not through scientific achievement, a commanding economy, or a dominating culture, as in times past. No, Hitler only respected and wanted military strength, and Krupp could give him that, for a price. To streamline and hurry the process along, Hitler decided that Krupp would become the Führer of German industry. Gustav was more than willing to accept such a position, and the two men hammered out the details during an April 28th meeting at the Reich Chancellery. Gustav's first order, coming from Hitler, was to remove all and any Jews from the Reichsverband, or Germany's Manufacturing Association. The other leaders went along with this, not that they had much of a choice, but then it was their turn. Gustav then ordered the Reichsverband to disband itself. With this done, Hitler on May 2nd, still in his first months of power, in 1933, mind you, had his stormtroopers seize every trade union office in the country. Their funds were taken, their leaders led off to concentration camps. Now that Germany had its iron-fisted leader, Krupp could easily imagine how life would be on the streets, extremely unsafe. And it would be little better for the elite. So even before the labor offices were gutted, Gustav set up the Spenda, or Hitler Fund, and encouraged those with means to donate to it, early and often. The money would go to whatever Hitler thought best, like his SA, eventually the SS, the Hitler Youth, but also as a way to not be harassed by Nazi thugs. As they held all legitimate authority, and the country was in a permanent state of national crisis, Nazi thugs could harass anyone they wanted, physically assault them, or simply shake them down for money. But Gustav let it be known that if one were to pay into the Hitler Fund, then they would receive a certain ticket, a golden ticket, which they could show to their would-be harassers, and the thugs would then simply go away. Gustav ran the organization for the Nazis until his son took over, and Krupp's first donation was of six million marks. From there, Gustav ordered all of his executives to join the Nazi party, and for his Krumpenier to offer the Nazi salute as a greeting. Those who did not were fired on the spot. He then intertwined himself even more with Hitler's party by joining the cause and signing the proclamation that asked the aging Hindenburg to step aside to allow Hitler to be both chancellor and president. Hindenburg was still coherent enough to deny this request, but when he died the following August, it happened anyway. But power only extends so far. Back at the Villa Hugel, Berta was king, so Gustav did not force his family to support or join the party. But he did have the Nazi flag hoisted outside the main entrance. Berta stayed silent, but women have a way 
of expressing their displeasure. Soon the warmth between Essen's number one couple began to fade. Nothing bonds two people together like blood, or rather, murder. In late spring of 1934, cracks began to show within the Nazi party. Hitler had promised to protect the common people from Jews, foreigners, and the elite of the country, that their hard work would not go unrewarded during their pension years. Yet it was plain now how close the Nazi officials were to those very barons who made coming to power possible. Then there was Ernst Rahm's SA versus the German army. To be sure, Rahm's men were die-hard Nazis, but also criminals and degenerates, who saw this as their time. They should be able to do or say whatever they wanted. Yet this group came into Gustav's sign of light when one of them stormed his way into a Krupp factory, ordered everyone to stop working, which was a sin in Essen, and lectured the audience about how things were going to be from now on. The SA had just over two million men within their ranks. As Hitler was ready to dip his toe into international politics, he needed a strong army, firmly supporting him. But that wasn't happening, as the SA seemed to be the new army of the country. And lastly, Gustav's man in the cabinet, Hugenberg, Minister of Economics, had been shunned from the government and replaced with a new man, one who held a personal grudge against the barons. Was Berlin breaking away from Krupp and his kind? Yet the genius of Hitler was to take these various problems and roll their solution all into one thrust. Within hours of Gustav complaining to Hitler about this stoppage of work, Der Führer put a plan in place to rid himself of these various cracks. First, the German leader invited himself to Krupp's mansion. Berta said that was fine, he could visit, but he was not allowed to spend the night. It wasn't Hitler's politics that angered her. No, it was the word socialist and the Nazi party name that offended her. She was a true Krupp, after all, and anyone who fought for the masses could never expect to be served tea in her house. Hitler said he would also be attending a wedding of a less important industrial baron in the area. The wedding came and went. Gustav and Hitler spent time behind closed doors, and then the leader traveled south to see an old war buddy. It was then, on June 30, 1934, that Hitler gave the go-ahead to purge his country of Rom and other SA leaders. It would be remembered as the Night of the Long Knives, and many of Hitler's enemies, real or imagined, some who had crossed him years ago, would be brutally murdered. In all, over 400 people were killed, without a trial. Their names were simply on a list. Of course, the government made this gruesome act legal, ex post facto. And just like that, Hitler was once again completely in control. His political enemies were gone, either dead or in a camp. This allowed the rise of SS Führer Heinrich Leutpold Himmler. This being Germany, many of the people, upon hearing of the killings, admired Hitler's decisiveness. 
Here was a man who got things done. Besides, the country, those of workable age, were too busy to organize against this. Two months before the Night of the Long Knives, Hitler had officially but secretly ordered the rearmament of Germany. Krupp of Essen was more than ready for this and immediately took on tens of thousands of workers. Unemployment went from six million to one million. They weren't getting paid as much as they would have liked, what with no labor union to represent them, but the people were working again, and they remembered the hard times. To be sure, Hitler had already announced a public works budget of 5.4 billion marks. What he didn't say was his rearmament program was allocated 21 billion marks. Of course, all of this was hidden, and as unemployment dropped, everyone outside Germany assumed it had to do with all the roads and canals being built. Germany was once again on the road to power. This was only because of the alignment of the government, the army, and, of course, the industrialists. But the first two could never move fast enough for the latter. Krupp had been planning for this for over a decade. Everything was in place. He just needed the go-ahead from Berlin. And now that he had it, no one moved fast enough to suit the industrial Fuhrer. Arms production was the number one priority of the country, and as such, the Krupp works went from producing one and a half million tons of steel a year to four million. Most of these deals between Berlin and Essen were never written down. They had understandings and quick chats, but all were on the same page, and Gustav proudly told the army that only 6% of his war production was being sold outside the country, for it would look odd for any arms manufacturer not to sell his wares outside his nation. The army could live with this. Krupp had moved back into its old position as first armorer of the German Reich. From 1934 to 1939, just before Poland was invaded, Hitler spent more than 90 billion marks on war production. So it will come as no surprise that Berta's personal profits, after taxes in 1935, was 57 million. In 1938, that jumped to 97 million. In 1941, at the height of Nazi Germany's powers, she made 111 million marks. But Gustav never stopped. He had been brought into the Krupp family to run things, and run things he did. When he was a younger man, he was expected to give the Krupp line heirs. This he did by helping to produce eight children in quick succession. Likewise, the money that Berta was earning had to be reinvested to make more money. There could never be enough arms for Germany, or money for the family. So, some of Berta's profits went to set up a synthetic fuel plant, the Triebstoffwerk. When war came, and they all knew war would come, that was their business, the first thing the army would focus on was its oil reserves. Well, not anymore. And now that the patriotism box could be checked, it was time to make money from this. So the patents for the synthetic fuel plant were leased to Japan, who went on to set up their own factories in Korea and Manchuria. 
As game as Gustav Krupp was, Hitler certainly tested his limits. When he first came to power, de Fuhrer told Krupp that he wanted 100 new tanks by March of the next year, 1934. This was mostly a test to see how ready the country's largest arms maker was. Krupp met the deadline easily. But then Berlin said it wanted 650 new tanks for the following year. Gustav stayed calm and had the appropriate staff pull out the up-to-date blueprints. Several factories had to be closed for retooling, but the deadline was again met. Hitler began to realize who he was dealing with, a super patriot, according to some. Hitler then, knowing he could never rival Great Britain and the United States in a shipbuilding race, wanted six submarines built as soon as possible, and another one each month. Krupp replied by laying the keels for two subs, then set up a program, once they were up and running, that put a sub in the water every eight days. When it came to the testing of the new quick-firing howitzers with motorized traction, this was done outside Gustav's and his board's offices. Some of the men lost their hearing from the explosions, but what could be heard brought tears of joy to the old men's eyes. Germany was strong, vibrant again. Now that Hitler had something to defend his borders and German coastal waters with, it was time to take the next major step. On March 16, 1935, Berlin announced the country's universal military conscription. There would be enough men for 12 corps and 36 divisions. Of course, this meant the Versailles Treaty of the Great War was dead, as it was meant to. Germany would no longer live with its shame. But Hitler was just beginning. He also let it be known that Nazi Germany's forces would be called the Wehrmacht, not the Reichswehr of the Weimar Republic. The Republic was dead. So too was its pathetic defenders. There would also be a Luftwaffe, which had been forbidden by Versailles. And orchestrating this military might, Germany would once again have a general staff. The announcements ended, for now, with the country's revised Kriegsmarine. The next day was Sunday, Germany's Memorial Day. All Germans everywhere could once again hold their heads up high. But as big as Hitler could dream, it could never compare to what Krupp was actually ready for. With orders coming in from the German army and navy, Krupp's was assured of profits and longevity, but it was never enough for Gustav, the caretaker of the Krupp dynasty. Yes, he would fulfill his country's orders, but that didn't mean he couldn't produce enough to simultaneously sell to other countries. Soon orders were coming in from Greece, Brazil, Bulgaria, Turkey, and the USSR. Orders, foreign and domestic, were satisfying, but as every salesperson can tell you, nothing is better than word of mouth, especially based on live demonstrations. On the night of July 22, 1936, the Fuhrer received an urgent plea for assistance from Francisco Franco of Spain. Besides the Condor Legion, a Luftwaffe unit, Hitler merely sent a few troops to the rebel leader. 
However, materiel was another matter. All told, the Germans spent a half billion marks on equipment for Spain. But it would be the reports that came back about the batteries of 88s sent to Franco that gave Gustav the most pride. In fact, some have argued, as these reports also went to Hitler, that the leader was so impressed he moved up the date for a general war. To be clear, Gustav didn't just care about profiting from Hitler's plans. He firmly believed in them. He supported them, heart and soul. Yes, he was a patriot, but he was also taught from a young age, as were many in Germany at the time, to fully support whomever was in power. Authority was not to be questioned. Gustav may have been a god in Essen, but Hitler was the most high of deities, as the Kaiser had been. So the Krupps towed the line. As Hitler began his diplomatic victories, before general hostilities broke out. In speeches in April of 1938, they, Gustav and his son Alfred, who was taking on more and more as his father aged, approved the Austrian Anschluss on October 13, 1938. They applauded the Nazi occupation of the Czech Sudetenland. On September 4, 1939, they claimed the invasion of Poland, A year after it was complete, they gloried in the subjugation of the lowlands and France. Around this time, the firstborn, the son, the heir, Alfred Krupp von Bohlen und Hallbach, was coming into his own. As the man in charge of war material and artillery construction, his first major success, indeed his first real independent assignment, was the improvement of the 88s which had so dazzled Hitler and his generals. As 1941 came closer, the son would step into more roles, his father falling back due to health. But not to get ahead of our story, Hitler could see that, because of Krupp, Germany was well on its way to strengthening the Third Reich. The next question was, how strong was the resolve of the countries that currently kept Germany in check? It was time to find out. On March 7, 1936, just before the Olympics were to be held in Berlin, Hitler ordered three battalions to cross the Rhine Bridge to occupy the demilitarized zone of western Germany. Everyone in Berlin and Essen were on pins and needles, waiting to see how the French would react. Germany only had some four brigades in uniform at the time. Anything the French might have attacked them with would have resulted in a French victory. Hitler knew this, so the standing order was not to fight. If the French responded with force, the three battalions were to head back over the bridge. Quick march. Though nerves were racked throughout Germany, Hitler's as well, he mostly kept this to himself. As for Gustav, it was a different matter. Everyone in Essen, of a certain age, could remember being occupied by French forces after the Great War. No one wanted to see that again, certainly with the rearmament going on, for their plans would have been exposed. But the days went by, and Paris did nothing. By the 20th day, Hitler knew his gamble had worked. Turns out that Paris was even more nervous 
than Berlin. So with Nazi Germany rearming at a pace that would put it years ahead of the anti-militaristic Western nations, and their resolve was shown to be weak, it was time to get down to brass tacks. In December of 1936, the smokestack barons were, once again, invited to Berlin. This time, Goering told them of Hitler's four-year plan. This endeavor, with Goering at the helm, answerable only to Hitler, was to be a series of economic measures, which included rearmament, to prepare for self-sufficiency, to reduce unemployment, a busy people or people that do not have time to complain, an increase in synthetic fibers, and to continue with the massive public works program. As Guerin explained, their great leader could only bluff their neighbor nations so far. Eventually, someone was going to stand up and try to impede Germany from its greatness. Only then would it be time for open warfare, and Germany would be ready for that moment. The barons heartily agreed to all this, but not only for the profits they would make. The men sitting around, all represented by Gustav, saw themselves as patriots. Yes, money would be made, but they also undertook projects that lost them money, but all for the greater good, Germany's good. Hitler's good. To them, life was a contest of survival. It had always been so. So better strong than weak, better victory than defeat, better to work together than to stand alone, while the other nations eventually harnessed their resources against the fatherland. In early 1937, Gustav and his son Alfred were made war economy leaders by Hitler himself but it came at a price. The two had to sign an oath written out by de Fuhrer. It read, I herewith declare that I stand by the National Socialist conception of the state without any reserve, and that I have not been active in any way against the interests of the people. I am aware that in case of any expression or action of mine in the future, which might be understood as an offense against the National Socialist conception of the state, I must expect, in addition to legal prosecution, my dismissal from the post of war economy leaders. This they did gladly, but it would be wrong to say that the current and future head of Krupp were absolute slaves to Hitler. They believed in him and his cause, their cause, but they were not complete yes-men, and the fatherland was not their number one priority. The concern, the works, was. For this was driven into every crup from birth, for Gustav, the moment he married Berta, and then read and then re-read the journal entries of the great, the first canon king, Alfred Krupp born in April of 1812. Hence, non-military production continued throughout the four-year plan, which caused Hitler and Goering no end of frustration. In fact, Goering was sent personally by Hitler to set things right, but the rotund field marshal walked away a defeated man. The concern would faithfully support the Third Reich, but it would be the head of the concern who would decide what was made, where, and how many. 
as had been established by the first canon king and was now an unshakable law in Essen. The man was always the king of his castle, or in this case, his Villa Hugo, which was bigger than any castle. Hey everybody, Ray here. Um, You're probably going to hear Mario in the background because my family's playing right now. Anyway, it's time for another um, giveaway. So I've got four Churchill travel mugs um, that I just want to give away to you members. Thanking you again for supporting the show. And uh, so just when you get a chance, send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com and just put uh, travel mug in the subject line. And I'll probably wait until the end of this month, uh, early next month, to do the drawing, give you plenty of time. So just put travel mug in the subject line. I think I've got four or five of these. And we'll just give them all away. Just, again, my way of thanking you. Take care, everybody.